Good. Well, let's pray, and uh, we will jump right into our lesson today, okay? Let's pray together. Father, oh Lord, what a glorious morning indeed. Thank you, Lord, that we can come and gather as your people, just even pulling up here uh, this morning and seeing people streaming into the church, and uh, just reminded me, Father, of your, of your call that we've been talking about here lately, um, that you have drawn us to yourself, irresistibly drawn us to you. And uh, we thank, we're so thankful, uh, Father, that um, you didn't leave us in our sin, Lord, to die. Like Israel in Ezekiel 16, you rescued us. You delivered us. You saw us in our hopeless state, and you sent your Son to deliver us. And then, having died for us, rising triumphantly, Lord, defeating the death, the, the, the grave and, and, the, and death that held us and that uh, took us captive and that had the power over us so that we could have victory over the grave. And so, Father, we're so grateful today for your son, Jesus. We pray you bless our time, uh, bless our study. Uh, give us understanding, Lord. We want to be good students of the Word of God, especially on Resurrection Day. Lord, uh, this is a, a day that so many people see it as just a tradition. But, Father, we see it as another day to do kingdom work and to be kingdom-minded and to uh, be disciples of our risen Savior. So, Father, may you fill our heart, may you illuminate our mind, and uh, give us strength to worship you in spirit and truth today. In Jesus' name, amen. 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 All right, well, we are moving down uh, the order, uh, salutis, and it just happens to be that I don't have to alter my Sunday school lesson because we are, uh, this, you know, we are on regeneration, and regeneration has everything to do with the resurrection. So uh, I didn't have to really change up my plans, at least I'm going to try to. Uh, point that out. But regeneration, if you remember our chart um, in terms of what the order of salvation is, you remember we've been studying what theologians call the ordo salutis. That's just when you want to feel smart, you say it in Latin. The ordo salutis. Uh, that is because the Christian church, and particularly the Reformed uh, church saw that what the Bible is teaching is not a, a, a disorganized, disjoined, or disjunct, uh, however you want to say it, dislocated, discombobulated picture of salvation, but salvation actually has a conceivable, perceivable order. And so we've been going down the line, and y'all see the chart there? I wish I had one of those laser pointers. Anybody got one of those on their keychain today? No? Okay. So, but just to see where we've been, right? We've covered the phase of salvation there on the left, conceptual salvation, which has to do with foreknowledge, predestination, and election. Some very heavy, heavy uh, doctrines that we had to look at there. And then now we're, we're touching upon actual salvation. By actual salvation, we mean that which transpires in space and time, in history, in real life. Uh, and we looked at effectual calling, and that that was a monergistic act. You see the, 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 the monergistic, synergistic section of the, of, the, of the graph there. Effectual calling is a monergistic act. So monergism meaning God alone is the active agent in that aspect of salvation. So effectual calling is all of God. He is the one that draws us to himself. Uh, and same thing now with regeneration. Regeneration is also an act that only God does in the heart. We cannot either cooperate 
or produce regeneration. We do not, we are completely, what theologians would say, uh, man is completely passive uh, on the issue of regeneration. And so that might begin to get some wheels spinning for everybody because I think a lot of times we think about regeneration uh, and make it almost synonymous with the word salvation. Have you ever done that? Well, very important to know that in the order salutis, we have to be careful not to, you know, not to just sort of generalize when we say, you know, that someone is regenerate. Yes, of course, in the course of common conversation, we're referring to whether or not a person is saved. But the word regeneration is not synonymous with salvation. Salvation is a much broader term. Regeneration is a much more specific issue. Um, for example, regeneration is not synonymous with justification. Justification is the result of a person's repentance and faith. Regeneration is not. And so these are the types of distinctions that we need to make when we study the, the issue of regeneration. So let me get to uh, regeneration and the Old Testament background. Back in Job, what's the oldest, well, I just gave it away, but what's the <laughs> oldest book of the Bible? Job. It's not Genesis, right? The oldest book in Scripture, as far as Old Testament scholars can tell, is not Genesis, it is Job. When was it written? Anyone? Anyone? Yes, ma'am? Well, yeah, I couldn't say it any better myself. <laughs> the time of the patriarchs, so we're talking like who? Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's right. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. These, so we're talking, well, 4,000 B.C. So this is a long time ago. And, and look at the primitive theology of Job. He asks this question. If a man dies, will he live again? Big question mark, right? Mm -hmm. My wife is part of a ministry uh, with wretched and she does The Biggest Project. And in The Biggest Project, we hand out the DVDs that are called The Biggest Question. In a sense, this is the biggest question that we can ask. When a man dies, will he live again? And this is the beautiful thing about the Old Testament, is a lot of times the Old Testament asks a question that the New Testament you know, answers plainly for us. And then look at what else that he, what, what Job says here. All the days of my struggle, I will wait until my change comes. Very interesting that he is already conceiving of life after death and that some sort of transition has to take place. He's not talking about reincarnation. He is not talking about the pre-existence of the soul. He is not talking about anything like that. He's talking about resurrection. For it was Job himself who said, I will stand with my Redeemer on that day, right? And so he already had, we, we give people in the Old Testament far too little credit. They had a much more robust theology that we give them credit for. Uh, but anyway, um, let's not get on that because then I'll get all caught up in Old Testament hermeneutics and want to get on into Christ in the Old Testament. You know, you know how I am. So definition, simple definition of what regeneration is. Here I take it right from Grudem because uh, it is succinct and it is good and accurate. I just couldn't say it better myself. So what is a standard definition for the doctrine of regeneration? Regeneration is a secret act of God in which he imparts new spiritual life to us. You see that? So in other words, uh, think about your testimony. 
Maybe you didn't have a testimony like mine. Mine was a night and day type of thing. I was, uh, I was darkness and then I became light. I was an unbeliever, I became a believer. I was unsaved, I got saved. I was unrepentant, I became repentant. Unregenerate, I became regenerate. It was one day, one moment, instantly, drastically, everything changed. My parents were freaking out. My friends all left me. My family was, you know, puzzled, not knowing what had happened to me. And uh, I remember one cousin calling me and saying, hey, used to call me, they used to call me Junior. And they say, hey, Junior, what's going on, man? What are you doing? So well, I'm a Christian. He said, he said, what? And he yelled for his, he yelled for this, for his wife, Mary! <laughs> Junior says he's a Christian now! <laughs> you know, it was pretty drastic uh, for when I became a Christian. It was, uh, took everybody for a, a complete loop because I didn't grow up in a Christian home. And so where did this Christianity come out of nowhere? You know, you're... This is not, you know, what you grew up with. So let's think about um, regeneration and let's go towards the Old Testament. Old Testament background. The concept of regeneration comes from the Old Testament dealing with the circumcision of the heart, a new heart. And that is what regeneration is telling us. For example, Deuteronomy 10, 16 tells the children of Israel to be circumcised in their heart. Very interesting language. Well, we know from the New Testament that this is, this is language of regeneration. This is language of what happens at conversion. And so this is where all this language comes from. Now, let me give you a couple of exact uh, locations, okay? Um, uh, let me see, let me back up. I told you I'm not good at this. Okay. Nope. Nope. I'll get there. I'll get there. Okay, there we go. Somebody want to turn to Ezekiel 36? Ezekiel 36, and then Jonathan, maybe you can turn to John 5. Actually, I'll do John 5, Jonathan, Ezekiel 36. Okay. Uh, because here we have a direct correspondence between what was taught in the Old Testament and what happened as we go to the principal text of the New Testament on regeneration, which, of course, is John chapter 3. Ye must be born again. Um... So, we have to understand what was Jesus talking about when he was talking to Nicodemus about being born again. Well, there are some clues in the text that help us to see that Jesus was not inventing the doctrine of the new birth. Jesus was not inventing the idea of being born again. You know, people say, being born again, oh, that's a, are you a born again Christian, right? Have you heard that? Is there any other kind of Christian, right? <laughs> if you're not born again, then you're not a Christian. I mean, it's that simple. You know, thousands, if not millions of people today are going to church who are not born again. They're going to church out of tradition. You know, they're, what do they call those uh, types of folks? Uh, Christmas and Easter? Priesters. They're priesters. Right? They'll come to church on Christmas and they'll come to church on Easter. They're priesters. But... <laughs> But they're not Christians because they probably have not been ever born again. Um, so Ezekiel, well, hold on to Ezekiel 36. And if you would, all of you, turn with me to John chapter 3. Okay, John chapter 3. I need to kind of zip through this. But uh, obviously we know this passage, right? Jesus makes a tremendous statement here in verse 3. And what a tremendous encounter with Jesus. This is a Pharisee, Nicodemus. Uh, what's so impressive about Nicodemus is that he's given an articular title, which means he was called not a teacher of Israel, 
He was called what, John? The teacher. The teacher of Israel. So Nicodemus knew his stuff. Uh, but when it came to this issue of being born again, Jesus says in verse 3, Jesus answered and said to him, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, let me ask you a question. What does it mean to see the kingdom of God, folks? To be there. To be there? So Jesus was talking about going to the kingdom one day? Now, that is an excellent answer. I want to know how you arrived at it. <laughs> how can I debate that? <laughs> how can I debate that? Okay. Because I think, Miriam, you're right when it says you cannot see the kingdom of God. In the Gospels, the idea of seeing the kingdom has to do with spiritual perception, not with physical location. Okay. And so it's the same thing as Jesus when he says, no one can come to me. The idea to come to Jesus is a reference to spiritual, uh, a spiritual reality, spiritually uh, knowing and coming to Christ by faith, in other words, by faith. And so this will become important as we go on, okay? So Nicodemus said to him, how can a man be born again when he is old or born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Can he? And so he's really pressing Jesus on this issue. Have you ever had anybody press you on the nature of the new birth? What are you talking? Okay, how does, I don't understand. So what, you can be a rotten person your whole life, and then on your deathbed, after you've been a mass murderer, and right, they use all these analogies, right? And, and, and then on your deathbed, you just say, oh, Lord, I'm sorry, and that's it, he's going to let you in. Right? Same kind of thing that's going on right here with Jesus. He's saying, oh, how does this work? What, do you want me to go back into my mother's womb, be born a second time? How does this work? And then Jesus says this, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter into the kingdom of God. Now, he, when he says that, look, and verse 6 is crucial. Watch this. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. Now, a heavily debated passage. Your options, theologically, are that Jesus here, when he says you must be born of water and the Spirit, that what he's referring to is either natural birth, and so this is a uh, reference to um, the embryonic fluid. When women say you, my, my, uh, a woman's water breaks or something, um, that doesn't work because... Uh, historically, that would be what's called as an, a historical anachronism. In other words, we're reading uh, 21st century modern man's uh, ideas back into the ancient world. The Jews had no idea of the embryonic fluid. They had no writings on this. There's no literature on it. The rabbis didn't talk about it. So the best of scholars, D.A. Carson, Leon Moore, some of these guys have conclusively shown that is definitely not what Jesus was talking about. Or, as many conclude the water is a reference to baptism. And so this is where you get people like the Church of Christ. You must be baptized and be spiritually uh, uh, born in order to be saved. So I just recently encountered Church of Christ folks at UNT who were trying to convince me that in order to be saved, you must be baptized. You cannot be saved apart from the waters of baptism. And I said, that. tell that to the thief, the thief on the cross. Right? Where was his baptism? He's nailed to a cross. How, he can, how can he get down and get baptized? Right? 
So it doesn't refer to that. So what it refers to, in my idea, is a spiritual concept that originated not with Jesus and not with the Gospels, uh, but in the Old Testament. So uh, here we go, uh, Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Ezekiel 36, verse 25. Boy, I tell you what, some of these uh, larger prophets, Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, they're so neglected. There is so much theology, and there's so much here for our instruction. But beginning in verse 25, he says, Then, um, oh boy, how do we say this? There's a lot of theology here, folks, <laughs> and more on more levels than one. Because, notice what Jesus is saying here. In the context, he is speaking about saving his nation. And he says in verse, uh, oh boy, let's see here, verse 24, I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands, and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you. You will be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Moreover, I will give you a new heart. Does that sound familiar? And put a new spirit in you. He says, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes, and you will be careful to observe my ordinances. And so this is where most exegetes believe Jesus is pulling from, this idea of cleansing with the water. See, in a Jewish mind, water in the context of spiritual renewal signifies cleansing. This is why the priests had to cleanse themselves. It wasn't because God was so interested that their hands were soapy clean. It was because of what the cleansing process symbolized. It was what it foreshadowed, which was always to be a picture of the internal work of the spirit in the heart of man, giving him a new heart, removing the filth, not of the dirt after you've been out in the field or something, but the filth of the, of the heart of man, our sin, in other words. Speaks of a much deeper cleansing. And so this phrase that you see up on the screen here, water and spirit, hudatas hai numatas, what that refers to is not two things, it refers to one thing, the, rea the spiritual reality of the new birth. That is what I believe it refers to. Because if you go back, watch this, if you go back to, um, if you go back to John, right, this is the way that Jesus ends the, the passage. This is the way that he concludes the, the phenomenon of being born again. He doesn't ever bring up the concept of baptism or any of the, anything of the sort. He ties it all in to one great reality, which is the new birth. And so, uh, verse, uh, let's see here, verse 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it and you do not know where it comes from and where it is going. So is everyone who is born of the Spirit. You see that? He ties it all into one great reality, which is regeneration. That is what Jesus has in mind. So that's where the concept comes from. Also, uh, Deuteronomy. Yes, sir. I think another argument that I heard, which is good, that backs what you're saying, is that immediately after um, Jesus says, are you not a teacher of Israel and you don't understand these things? So it's almost like Jesus, it was 
like a someone who understood the Old Testament should have grasped this. Exactly. So that that right there tells you to go back to the Old, Old Testament in Very order good to point. interpret that. Very good point. Yeah, that's right. He had the Old Testament background. He knew where you know to pull from pull from theologically. The New Testament, this is this kind of has to dawn on you after you've been studying the Bible for a while, that a lot of the things you study in the New Testament, it begins to dawn on you, everything in the New Testament comes from the Old Testament. Everything. God doesn't want us to break his book in half, right? The book is given to us in two testaments to go together, not to be ripped asunder, right? And, um, you know, in the early church, that was attempted. Does anybody know where and why? In the early church, I'm thinking first few centuries. Marcion. What is it? Marcion. We'll explain that. Yeah, you're right, but explain it, Pastor Chris. You know the different view of like angry God in the Old Testament was wrathful and a loving God in the New Testament who was loving, so he put them against each other, right? And didn't like the God of the Old Testament who was wrathful, only like the God of the New Testament who was loving. Yeah, it's called Marcion's Canon. In his canon of Scripture, only the New Testament was relevant for those reasons. Apparently, he didn't read Revelation. But, uh, can be. Well, right. Well, I mean, let's let's um, you know, let's point out a couple of things about dispens- at least classic dispensationalists. A lot of the progressive dispensationalists have abandoned some of these ideas, but they would say that regeneration did not exist in the Old Testament. Uh, they would say that, 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 that would, the indwelling of the Spirit did not exist in the Old Testament. That's all a New Testament phenomenon, solely a New Testament phenomenon. And of course, we've come to conclude that it's not, because why would Moses be telling the people to circumcise their hearts? <laughs> why would Moses speak of it as a present reality if it's something that didn't happen in the Old Testament? Uh, yes, ma'am. That is a great question, uh, Haley. That's a really good question. It's a question of the canonicity of Revelation and when was it included into the canon. It was disputed for a while, but it wasn't that disputed. Uh, other letters were more disputed than Revelation. Revelation was, uh, was part of the Christian canon rather quickly. So it wasn't, uh, it, it was like all books, they were, um, they, they went through a time where the church uh, had to recognize their authenticity, but it happened very quickly. All of John's letters were recognized fairly quickly. The ones that had more difficulty were like uh, Hebrews, um, Peter, First Peter, uh, letters of Peter. Those are kind of the letters that had more, uh, more of an issue entering into the canon. But Revelation was included very early in the church. I would say already by the second century, people were quoting Revelation as scripture. So... Um, that's a great question. Now I want you to turn with me just to see another Old Testament fulfillment, at least New Testament fulfillment of an Old Testament text. Deuteronomy 10.16. Somebody read that for me. I got Kim in my head when I'm putting this together, you know, what she told me. I guess I bear witness what she's saying. Make you dig for the text. Don't just put it up there so we can read it and then, you know, you never interact with the Bible. Deuteronomy 10.16. So, so circumcise your heart and stiffen your neck no longer. 
That's right. Now turn to Romans chapter 2, verse 28, because there you see the language of that picked up and uh, we understand it and understand what it means. Verse 28, Paul says, For he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh. Now, try that in a Jewish context. I mean, in a Jewish context, uh, outward circumcision, circumcising your baby on the eighth day, was everything. It was the sign of the covenant. It was how you were part of, uh, uh, you know, it symbolized your covenant membership. So, uh, wow, what a transition for the Apostle Paul. Speaking to a, a church in Rome that is comprised of both Jews and Gentiles, which are having problems getting along because Gentiles are coming into a Jewish faith and saying, how do we get around with all of this stuff? You know, these dietary restrictions and that's, you know, all these days that they celebrate, all the, 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 the issue of circumcision, the issue of the Sabbath, all these things. Romans chapter 14 is really crucial to see that tension. But uh, here, uh, Paul makes it very clear what circumcision matters. And he says, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that which is of the heart, by the spirit, not by the letter. And he prayed, and his praise is not from men, but from God. So in other words, the only approval that matters is the approval of God. And how do you gain the approval of God? Not by outward circumcision, but by spiritual circumcision, which is a work of the Spirit of God. And that, um, that's sort of the context of it. The Old Testament covenant sign of circumcision is fulfilled by the New Testament teaching on regeneration. It's very important. Uh, our Presbyterian friends could maybe learn a lesson from that or two, right? The reason why we don't baptize babies today is because circumcision doesn't correspond to physical baptism. It corresponds to spiritual baptism. Okay? Let me go on. Um, Okay. Same thing. Uh, More fulfillment. Colossians chapter 2, verse 11. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Now, look at what he's... The parallel again. The removal of the body of the flesh. In other words, what, when he says flesh, what is he talking about? Well, he's not talking about the, the uh, physical aspect of man, the corporeal aspect of man, not his physical body. That's not what he's talking about. The body of the flesh there means something like the sinful nature. Okay? Overcoming the sinful nature, setting aside the principle of sin in your life. That's what he's referring to. He's not referring to physicality. It's amazing. Everything has become principally spiritual, right? Um, Okay, what is the means of regeneration? Very important. God's word. I put God's word in its many forms through the general call. You guys remember this, right? Remember this from last week, that the general call comes through the different forms of the word of God, whether it's preaching, whether it's reading the Bible, whether it's witnessing, whether it's a sermon, right? All of those are the means that God uses to give people his word, and the word is the means through which uh, regeneration comes. Now, there's a very important, who has an NIV in here? Um, Anybody? (coughs) Gail, I thought you had an NIV. I don't today. You don't today? You were good today? 
<laughs> you have an NIV there? Okay, well, yeah, we, this is the digital age. I mean, we can bring an NIV in here, right? So read James 1.18 in the NIV because I think it really draws out. Sometimes the NIV is really good. I, I don't really, you know, I don't have a problem with the NIV as long as we know what, we're what, what it is. <laughs> that is not meant to be a very literal word for word, but you got it already? Man, you're fast. Go ahead. <laughs> he chose to give us birth through the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits of all he created. Amazing. God chose to give us birth through his word? The word of truth. Through the word of truth. Absolutely. So that is, what, what birth is he talking about? The new birth, regeneration. And uh, that's right, that's right. Consequently, you know, let me just make a point. Um, so that maybe when you're studying certain things, books, commentaries, and stuff like that, you know, be careful when, when, when scholars, you know, um, especially of a more liberal kind, try to set one author of scripture against another, you know, they do that. They're authorship issues, you know what I mean? But here you have James now articulating the new birth. So that means James has total agreement with John on how the new birth works. So anyway, I just needed to point that out. Also, general revelation is not enough to impart regeneration. That's what that means. It's not just that the word of God is the means that God uses to bring about regeneration. We have to be careful and distinguish that general revelation is not enough for the, for the, for the, uh, for, to impart regeneration. What do I mean by general revelation? What do I mean by that? Yes, sir? Um, knowing about God through the creation. Okay, through the creation. Anything else? Through natural means. Through natural means. Anything else? So general revelation refers to what? The knowledge of the existence of God <clears throat> naturally. Okay. Okay. So mainly, right, general revelation has to do with creation and conscience. That's kind of the, the two easiest ways to remember it, right? So that man in his innate and inherent consciousness, his mental faculty, his cognition, doesn't have in it of himself, he doesn't have enough revelation, right, for regeneration. He needs special revelation. He needs the word of God in order to be regenerate. Amen. You know what I mean? It's just a fact. Maybe even an, an example of this. How many of you guys have heard that Muslims are being converted to Christ through dreams? Mm -hmm. Wow, there's a lot of people in here. Yeah. Mike, what do you think about that, Mike? I, 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 don't, I don't believe it. You don't believe it? Nope. Why not? I don't, I don't believe that, that that's personal revelation. Mm -hmm. And anything that personally revealed to a person, that would become gospel. Okay. Is there any way, though, that a Muslim can have special revelation without the Bible, even? Yeah, no, even without the Bible. It would require some supernatural means of God. Do you know where I'm getting at, Chris? <laughs> Are you getting to Romans 10? Well, no. It would not surprise me, and this might maybe the most controversial thing I say all day, 
Uh, it wouldn't surprise me that a Muslim can get saved um, and come to a knowledge of Jesus Christ. Because if you read the Quran, the Quran actually states that Jesus, it, the way it phrases it, of course, is that it renounces these ideas, but it is there that Jesus Christ is, the, according to the people of the book, he is the son of God, that he died on the cross, right? They worship him as God. And so they have a little bit more than general revelation. And so all I'm saying is it could it be that God would haunt these people with the forbidden idea that Jesus is in fact the Son of God, that he did in fact die on the cross, and that he is in fact God incarnate. I don't know. I don't know. Yes, sir. Maybe we can, I guess maybe open that possibility, but it should never, we should never be settled. We should never that. use that as a descriptive right. thing. That's right. Exactly. Because we can't forget, where does Islam get its knowledge of Jesus? From the Bible. From the Christians. From the Jews. So they have a historical connection, granted a false one, but they have a historical connection to, to the Judeo-Christian tradition. Yes, sir? Isn't it safe to say if anybody, I don't care what their background is, has a, what we're gonna, what I think you were using when you used the word revelation of Jesus Christ and comes to a saving knowledge, that we don't want to take that as doctrine for the church. We don't want to make that a requirement to salvation. But I, I personally, I don't think I can discount anybody's testimony. All I can say is if that led you to Christ and you're following Christ and you're in a good Christian right. church, amen. Yeah. But I don't think we can say unless it con can't be. unless it contravenes the word of God. Right, right. I mean, unless it directly contravenes what God's word teaches, then then we can discount their testimony. Right. You know what I mean? You know, I had a very nice lady come to a Bible study I did many years ago, and she says, "I talk to God all the time. He shows up in my living room. Yeah. He has conversations with me all the time." Mm -hmm. And I just, as as you know, as nice as I could, you know, <laughs> I have to say, "Ma'am, you know, I." I don't agree with that. You know, obviously, I mean, God doesn't show up in people's living rooms. Yes, sir. Yes, sir. I, I think it not in that way. You know, not in that. I think it would be possible that, uh, let's say, most got evangelized, mm -hmm. and somebody prayed for him to have a dream, and because of the witness encounter, he had a dream, and because of the evangelism, he came to the you know repentance and faith in Christ. Well, of course, in that sense, because we're saying the whole gospel has been presented to him. Yeah. Praise the Lord. And you know it would I mean? still lead to yeah. not just. There, yeah, it's just that I've heard a lot of Muslims say, we knew about Jesus Christ. We, we, we knew what the, the, the Christians believed, that he is the son of God, that he died on the cross. These were forbidden things for us to think about. Oh, Emilio, isn't yes, that almost in a way, like for me, I never read scripture. You know, I knew about God and I knew about Christ and I knew that I was a sinner. Well, already then, you already had more... You know, more than just general revelation, you had more than that already. Mm -hmm. you, were, you were enlightened to the truth. You know, in a sense, you were an awakened sinner because you had the truth revealed to you mm -hmm. uh, in some capacity. That's why we said the Word of God in all of its forms. Right. Whether you heard somebody articulate it, whether you heard it on television, whether you read it in the Bible. You know, like I, you know, before I was a Christian, I would sneak away and read the Bible without anybody knowing, not even you. <laughs> <laughs> this is my sister. Growing up, my sister knew everything about me, you know? I, we didn't hide it from her. Amy, this yes, sir. To clarify, what we're not saying is that people off, you know, in the jungles can have dreams. Amen. God chooses to reveal. That's Muslims. right. We're not saying that Muslims, God's just revealing to them through dreams that God 
gospel. Special revelation. They have received special revelation through the Quran. That's right. Distorted. That's right. Maybe it's enough that they could, you know. Exactly. Exactly. I mean, you know, uh, I have, a, you know, a friend, it's a, a woman that was in my Greek class when I was doing Greek, smartest person in our class. She got straight A's. I mean, absolute smartest person in our class. She got saved in a Mormon church, sitting in a Mormon church, hearing the Book of Mormon week in and week out, and hearing distorted things about Jesus Christ. But, you know, there was enough revelation and just enough Bible passages that she got saved, and it took her two years to awaken to the fact that she was in a cult. And then when she had tried to get out, they tried hunting her down, you know, stalking her. Let me read you something that uh, Grudem says about effectual calling and regeneration. He says, the effective calling is thus God the Father speaking powerfully to us, and regeneration is God the Father and God the Holy Spirit working powerfully in us to make us alive. So this is what regeneration is all about, making us alive. The Father and the Spirit working together to produce life where there was no life. Um, I want to bring in some theology here, okay? You guys are like, is, is this whole thing been theology? Up to? <laughs> Reformed theology, because we are a Reformed church, and I want to bring in where, where we're talking about this doctrine of regeneration in the doctrines of grace, which is known as Calvinism or, you know, um, Reformed theology. But uh, you remember the doctrines of grace, historically, the, the TULIP anachron you know, acronym is what was used to describe the nature of God's sovereign grace and, and the nature of man. Uh, so t uh, TULIP was sort of representative of the doctrines of either total depravity unconditional election, limited atonement, or a better word, definite atonement, irresistible grace, or what they've also called overcoming grace. And then last of all, perseverance of the saints. Well, irresistible grace is the, the, the section of, the the, of, of Reformed theology that speaks to regeneration. And so that's what we're, you know, that's where regeneration fits in the Reformed scheme, if you would, in the idea of God's grace overcoming our rebellion. I mean, think about it. Uh, it it's as Spurgeon said, a, a man, uh, an Arminian uh, gentleman asked Spurgeon, but Spurgeon, um, he said, but, but, you know, you came to know the Lord, but wasn't it you that came to know the Lord? Didn't you believe in the Lord? It was your doing. And Spurgeon asked him, yes, of course I believed, but why did I believe? What made me to differ from my neighbor? What made me to differ from my family member that doesn't believe? What was it that made me to differ? Well, according to this, it is God's sovereign activity, which is rooted in his sovereign election, which is rooted in his sovereign decree. That's the way that works. Any questions? Some pretty heavy-duty stuff, huh? It's just stuff that we can never get over. Now, the nature and the character of regeneration Number one, it proceeds faith. And this is where a lot of folks, maybe they don't quite, or have never quite heard this, never quite articulated it or seen it in Scripture. Number two, of course, it results in obedience. So number one, it precedes faith. Regeneration, remember, is a monergistic act, meaning God alone is at work, and proceeds, it goes before repentance and faith. Indeed, it leads to it. 
So many folks, as a matter of fact, the Anglicans, in one of their doctrinal statements, the Anglican Church, states that on the basis of repentance and faith, we become regenerate. So they have the complete opposite order, right, to our, our graph, that uh, regeneration goes before repentance and faith, right? And so when somebody asks you, how do I become born again? And if your answer is, by repentance and faith, that is not an accurate answer. See, this is why it's so important to know the distinction between what is regeneration, what is justification, what is sanctification, what is glorification. These are all subsets of the order of salvation, but we have to get these right. Okay. Um, What's that? So what do you say that, so how does somebody get born again? By a, a, a sovereign work of God. Okay. Now, I think I know what they mean by that, right? Yeah. They probably mean, well, how do I become saved? Yeah, okay. Right, right, right. And I'm saying don't confuse people, but just know for yourself, right, right that this is, Scripture teaches actually the opposite. And that's what I'm going to show you right now. <laughs> oh, no. Okay. Okay, here we go. So, um, the proof that regeneration precedes faith. Let's go to Acts chapter 16 before we go to those John passages. Acts chapter 16, verse 14. Um, again, a very practical, primitive example in real time, if you would, real life. This is not abstract. This is a historical event that transpired. Beginning in verse 14, right? Acts chapter 16. A woman named Lydia, the city of Thyatira, a seller of purple fabrics, a worshiper of God, was listening. And the Lord opened her heart to respond to the things spoken by Paul. And so before Lydia was able to respond even to the hearing of the word of God, God did a salvific work of opening up her heart, changing her. There was a heart change, right? That was not of anything that she did. She received it passively by God. That was faith. Uh, what's that? She was given faith. She was first. given the ability to have faith. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Perfect example, uh, John 11. Jesus is standing outside of the tomb of Lazarus, his friend. Read John 11. Over and over and over and over and over, it says, Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Jesus loved him. Right? And then they come and they say, Jesus, your friend whom you love is dying. And then the text says, and so he stayed two more days. So he waited for Lazarus to die, whom he loved, his friend whom he loved. And then to make matters worse, the text goes on to say, he was dead, he was dead, he was dead. Think four times in John 11, he was dead, he was dead, he was dead. You think the author is trying to make something clear to us? He was dead, <laughs> right? And his sister runs up to Jesus and says, Lord, if you would only have been here, what? My brother would not have died. And then Jesus sees the whole, you know, 
the whole fiasco going on, the wailing and the weeping and the tomb, <laughs> and he comes and he sees their unbelief, and he is hurt, and he, he sincerely cares for his friend Lazarus. So John, what is it, 1135, I think, Jesus wept, right? And then he goes outside the tomb of Lazarus, he looks up to, to, to heaven, he says a prayer, and then after he prays, he says, he speaks to the dead. Now, Deuteronomy says we're not supposed to speak to the dead. Jesus spoke to the dead. But what did he speak? Lazarus, come forth. He commanded life to come from Lazarus, to proceed out of him. You th what did Lazarus have to do with that? Right? Was Lazarus in there saying, okay, Jesus, just give the, give the signal. Right? I'll come out. No, once again, four times over again, he was dead. He was dead. He was dead as a doornail. As a matter of fact, his sister said, he stinks. He's so dead. Right? The stench of death is the sign that he is dead. He cannot just be revived. He needs to be raised. So the sovereign word of Jesus, the, the, the command creates obedience. Same thing with Lydia. God spoke that word into her heart, created life where there was no life, and she obeyed. Yes, sir? And Jesus also didn't make life available to Lazarus, for Lazarus to choose. That's right. It wasn't an option that was presented right. to him. That's right. For all the people who had died. It is the gracious turning of God in the heart of man to turn us to him. He gives us the gift of faith. He turns our rebellious wills towards him. He breaks our heart of stone, gives us a heart of flesh, so that we may love him and know him. And then what about... Um, Last couple passages, because I've got to get to this. Just like the Valley of Dry Bones. <laughs> yeah. If God doesn't breathe on us, we will stay dead in the valley. Okay, turn to First John. This is crucial, and we'll end with this. I always got to end with this. Even though I'm running late, it's so incredibly important, right? Two passages out of First John, to me, make it so that regeneration must precede faith. It cannot be any other way. Grammatically, this is not an issue of just theology. This is an issue of grammar, okay? And this is where, uh, this, this fully convinced me after seeing this evidence. First John chapter 2, verse 29. Now, we know, because we're evangelical, right? We're not Catholic, right? We're not Eastern Orthodox. We're not Coptic. We are Christ evangelical Christians. We know that the Bible teaches that we are saved by grace through faith, right? I'm almost quoting that verse, right? Ephesians chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Not by works, lest any man should boast. It is a what? Gift of God, right? Look at verse 29 here. If you know that he is righteous, as God, you know that everyone also who practices righteousness is born of him. Is that text teaching that in order to be born of God, you must practice righteousness first? Even though the order, right, doesn't, it doesn't say it like that. It doesn't say, you know, that everyone who is born of him will practice righteousness. That's not the way that it's worded. 
the, uh, the reason why is that the NASB, trying to be very literal to the Greek and the Greek language, that's the order in the Greek text. But the crucial issue is the word is born. You see that? Is born. That Greek word is a perfect passive participle that means, uh, like the ESV has it in your Bibles, if you have the ESV, right? Has been born of God. Even further, has already been born of God. That's the way that it should be translated. Now look at verse chapter 5, verse 1, up here. Chapter 5, verse 1 says, Whoever believes, there's faith, that Jesus is the Christ, again, is born of God. Guess what, folks? It's the exact Greek word. It's the exact Greek word. It's the exact Greek grammar, which means if anybody believes that Jesus is the Christ, he has already been born of God. Questions? Comments? This is great. I can do this all day. You know the word off the top of your head? Genao. For that uh, Greek term there in First John. But regeneration also results in obedience. I'm completely out of time, so I'll just read Bavink. Herman Bavink, he'll do it for us. If you don't have any of the uh, systematic theologies by Bavink, you are missing out on a treasure trove of wisdom and knowledge. One of my absolute, has become one of my absolute favorite theologians, bar none. Not only are their deeds and conduct, their life's purpose and direction, their ideas and activities changed, that is, those who are regenerate, but also humans themselves are transformed and renewed in the core of their being. Amen? Amen. That's what regeneration is. True re regeneration leads to a change in the very core of your being. Things have to change. And if things in your life don't change post regeneration, then you have to question whether or not you really truly were regenerate. Let's go to worship. Hmm.